You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. The best part of the hunting season is finally here. We've waited for this all year long. Now let's make it count with some great gear from our partners. First up, Tacticam is our title sponsor, and their point-of-view cameras are my go-to method for filming my hunts. Their new 6.0 camera has added a 1-inch LCD touchscreen that has totally changed the game for me. Its lightweight design, weatherproof housing, and one-touch operation really simplify the self-filming process and make sure that I have high-quality footage to share with my family and friends. My personal favorite for archery season is two 6.0 cameras, one on a stabilizer mount on my bow and one on a bendy clamp mount for an over-the-shoulder angle. And I pair this with a Tacticam remote so I can turn both cameras on with the push of a single button. To learn more or pick up your 6.0 today, head over to Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. Now as the temps begin to drop, I know I'll be hunting in comfort with my Huntworth camo. Huntworth is making high-quality, technical hunting clothing at a fraction of the price of other brands. This time of year, I'm making sure to layer smart. I start with a set of base layers, either the Casper or the Bangor, which I have found to be very comfortable and moisture-wicking. Next, I'll have on either my Elkins midweight top and bottom or my Saskatoon heavyweight top and bottom. Either way, I'm also going to be bringing my Saskatoon vest. And because the hunting often gets better when the weather turns nasty this time of year, the Winstead rain suit lives in my hickory pack all the time. And I can honestly say that this is the best rain suit that I have ever used. You can learn more or grab your Huntworth gear today at HuntworthGear.com. And finally, the Onyx Hunt app is an absolutely indispensable tool for me this time of year. If I'm not in the action, I'm going to be making a move to go find it. And the Onyx Hunt app helps me identify those terrain features that I want to key in on with their latest aerial imagery additions. The app now has fully functional 3D on both iOS and Android, low-resolution satellite images updated every two weeks with historic look-back, and leaf-off imagery, all in addition to the base maps that you've always had in the app. Get more out of your maps this season and know where you stand with the Onyx Hunt app. Now let's get into this week's show. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This is your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley, today playing co-host to my host, Mr. Pierce Nellis. Pierce, how's it going? Doing great, man. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for uh, thanks for jumping on here. You're going to take the reins here in just a moment. But we've also got return guest, Mr. Sam Billhorn from Whitetail Partners, Wisconsin. Sam, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Good to be back. Yeah, glad to have you back on. It's that time of year where uh, we like to have you on. I think the very first time you were on the show was about this time of year, right? Uh, 
very well could have been been on a lot of different seasons now but uh it's a great time to start talking about habitat and what we're doing out on these properties now that the uh, hunting's wrapping up yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's a good time of year to assess our season and to look back and say, did we have the success we wanted? Uh, granted, we're at a little bit different points of our season. I was down hunting deer uh, on a pre-rut pattern, uh, not even pre-rut pattern, early season pattern in Alabama this past week here in, uh, in December. We're looking to have a February rut down there, which is kind of strange. And I actually saw the smallest spotted fawn that I've ever seen in December on the property. I'm guessing uh, the doe must have been bred in April of of this past year. Um, we have a, a rut in March or in February, and then it's not abnormal to see rutting activity in in March. But this this fawn was extremely extremely small. Mm. Uh, so I'm guessing she was the doe was bred in April, and she probably dropped early November. So uh, very, very different. And Pierce, I sent you a picture of the deer I was able to, to harvest with my son. And Pierce responded back, southern deer are hashtag built different uh, <laughs> because it was all of about 60 pounds. And was it was a, a year and a half old doe. Uh, she was not the mother to the fawn, but she was the same size as the fawn's mother. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, 60 pounds on the hoof. We're talking not, we're talking no a lot. Kidding. Oh yeah, very very small. Did you sling it on your shoulder to walk out? <laughs> Basically, yes, pretty much. I, I got back to the truck and I just grabbed her by the legs and threw her up into the back of the truck. It was. Uh, it it makes you think. Tw- I mean, I'm I'm sitting there with my son watching these deer out the window and thinking to myself, how do, how can I pull this trigger? Like I'm not I'm not <laughs> sure that I can do this. Like I can't make myself do it and. You know, we're watching multiple deer out in the field. They're all about the same size. We've got uh, one small buck out in the field who's about the same size as these does. And so, you know, trying to determine, uh, because this fawn was so young, uh, I was trying to, you know, I'm thinking eight weeks old roundabout. So I'm thinking, okay, I need to figure out which one's the mom and which one's not here, eight to, you know, 10 or 11 weeks old. So uh, we watched them for a very, very long time, which allowed me to realize just how small these deer were. But my son was so gung-ho, and we've never harvested a deer together before. And so I uh, took the shot, dropped her in her tracks, and he immediately jumps up out of his seat, throws his fists up in the air. He's like, we shot a deer! <laughs> and uh, awesome experience. And, you know, he will know no different. He, he, he doesn't understand that newborn fawns in Wisconsin are basically 60 pounds almost at this point, but right. you know, is what it is. So anyway, guys, we're here to talk habitat improvement. Pierce, this is a segment where I'm going to pass it on to you as you take more and more of the reins here at the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. And I'm going to play co-host today, which means I may jump in with some follow-up questions uh, or I might just throw in some useless, uh, you know, additions that uh, derail the conversation. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Hey, we're always game for a rabbit hole or two, and I'm sure we'll find a couple here. <laughs> right, <laughs> That's right. awesome, man. Thanks, Josh. And, you know, to be fair, I do want to note that when you did send me the photo of that deer, you said, and before you ask, it wasn't a fawn. So <laughs> <laughs> good preface. Yeah. You, yeah. You led me into that one. <laughs> yeah, I had, man, I had to. You look at it and it's like, but you look at its face and you can tell it's not a fawn. It's it's right. an adult deer. It just um, they're just tiny, man. Right. 
No, that's wild. So let me ask you this before we jump into the deer stuff, because you got me curious now with these southern deer, because it seems like just such a, a strange game down there. Are you ever seeing like rutting activity, um, you know, into like early turkey seasons now and there or anything? Oh, yeah. We, we've seen deer chasing during turkey season. Like, no wild, well, yeah, like wild turkey hunting. Huh. Seen it in action. Man, scrapes. Uh, you know, you're out turkey hunting. All the scrapes are wide open. Mm-hmm. You know, you're getting that's because used to our our turkey season began March 15th, and so you'd oh, be sure. out turkey hunting, and you're you're literally at the peak of second rut activity. So <laughs> all the scrapes are wide open. It's you know sign is everywhere. You're like, man, I feel like I should be deer hunting, but it's right it's turkey. So yeah, oh. it's wild. The when I was so my very first deer, just real quick, was a was a three year old buck that weighed 135 pounds on the hoof just to give you a, an idea of gotcha. body weight down there where we are. I mean, these are, these are true coastal deer. Right. So, right, man, that's wild. Oh. <clears throat> well, um, oops, yeah. So just jumping in here um, now, now that we got our, uh, sorry, my mic sounded like it went crazy there for just a minute. Um, so we've got, like you mentioned, Mr. Sam Billhorn uh, joining us today. So uh, as we all know, deer season, um, man, it was a long, long journey for us this year, um, as I think it was for a lot of folks. And, you know, a lot of people had some success. A lot of people were scratching their uh, scratching their heads a little bit, maybe had their noses buried in their phone, twiddling their thumbs for most of, uh, uh, most of the deer season. <clears throat> and it may have been... Uh, because of the way their habitat was laid out. Um, so I thought it'd be a great way to, uh, or a great way to kick things off here with Sam would be, um, well, first off, Sam, how was your, how, how did your season pan out? And second question here, um, what do you use to score your season? Or like, what's your your criteria for evaluating a property postseason? So my season versus evaluating property, I think it'd be two different things. I mean, mm-hmm. my, you know, I, I've, as I continue to uh, put more and more seasons under my belt, I, I've really come to the point of just in, enjoying being out on the landscape and going out where I'm not going out to do a project, going out to work. Um, I've, I probably enjoyed my sits more this year than I ever have. I've seen, I saw a ton of deer. I passed on four different, uh, 130 to 140 bucks, um, waiting on bigger. We had one buck, um, that was uh, taken, um, by, on by family on our property, which was fantastic. So the buck we were after, and really that was, I find myself in this, uh, situation always where there's one deer that I want to encounter and, or have an encounter with, um, had many, many close calls with him, um, but just didn't have the opportunity to execute. Um, but my, my cousin did, and that was, that was great. Um, and, uh, um, it was neat to see that happen. And, uh, that was the first day of gun season too. So, you know, a lot of family was around and really had an enjoyable time, uh, rewinding back to archery. My, my son shot a doe opening day of archery season season, which was fantastic. Got to be with him for that. Also, uh, um, you know, a lot of other harvests on the property too, does and a nephew shot a small buck. And so we all had a great time hunting. Um, 
I didn't put one down this year. Our doe numbers normally, I'd be taking some does later in the year, but our doe numbers did seem down significantly just to, through our observation. So I decided to pass on that and um, hadn't really seen a buck after season. There was one I probably would have taken, um, but he will be a beauty next year, probably a, oh, one. 40, 145, nine pointer this year should be a really great deer next year. So anyway, that was our season as far as how I look at it. Um, but then transitioning into habitat, it's getting to this time of year. My, my number one or my, my favorite walk of the year is that first walk I get to take on the property when I'm no longer hunting, when the, uh, uh, the deer are safe from the neighbors and so on that, uh, I get out. Usually that occurs for me around Christmas time, you know, so, uh, that was this past week and I got out, gathered up most of my cameras, um, left a few out in key spots just to kind of continue monitoring, uh, also placed, uh, some new can or new locations out, uh, in permission ground we have adjacent to us now, uh, to kind of start to explore that. So some new adventures on the horizon for us that way. Awesome. Um, but yeah, that first walk is, uh, is a lot of fun to see what really did happen in the season because the sign is is uh, most apparent uh, right now and not having the snow we've had and decent moisture the ground's soft mm -hmm. and a lot of great sign to go out there and see yeah sam can i can i jump in right there you yeah. mentioned something kind of in passing um when you're getting out for these first walks you are it's not just when you're done hunting and when your party is done hunting yeah. But you're also coordinating that with what the neighbors are doing. And I think that's a really important point because especially a year like this, guys are eager to get out there. Like the snow is non-existent. Therefore, hey, let's get after it. Let, let's go ahead and get a jump on things. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is there are some archery seasons still running. So tell me your thought process with that. Yeah, and in specific to Wisconsin, which we have with the doe seasons, um, I choose to go out during that doe season um, and go for my walk. I figure the bucks, unless they're – uh, being taken illegally are safe at that time. Um, and, and I feel pretty good that I think the majority of the neighbors are done, especially a few of the key guys that I know that are good, good savvy hunters around us. Um, uh, believe that they are done and, um, uh, you know, we kind of know what's left out there and, uh, we decide to go in and take a look then. So, yeah, you, you really want to make sure the coast is clear. Um, that's a little bit different for everybody, depending on where you're at. But yeah, it's waiting till, you know, later on in December, most people have hung it up by then. Yeah, I, I, I bring that up. I was on a property with a, with a client just a couple of weeks ago and we're walking into this really, really good area. It's a spot we were hoping to put a food plot. There's, there's good bedding around the, the perimeter of it already, mm -hmm. uh, this location. And we're walking in and we find this scrape. We're looking at a scrape. We're hanging a camera. Uh, walking through the whole process of next steps on it. And we hear the neighbor just across the fence line shoot twice within, you know, 30 seconds of us walking up to this, to this location. So it's like, well, there went uh, two of whatever that was <laughs> so, yeah. Uh -oh, yeah, or one of them. But, uh, but yeah, you can definitely do some harm this time of year if you're not careful and you don't know what your, what your neighbor yeah. is up to. Well said. Absolutely. So you mentioned a new permission piece. Is that a new a new piece that you're uh, going to be able to start exploring a little bit. Here. Yeah. So yeah, it's, um, uh, some adjacent family land. I, used, I hunted it years and years ago. Um, but now seeing it anew and have, you know, haven't walked some of these areas in a decade, 
sure. um, to go check out and get more serious about hunting. There's there's some really high quality locations that we're going to hang a few stands in and uh, can't do too much on the habitat manipulation side, but we can uh, go hunt some quality uh, ridge tops and some real, real nice travel patterns. So I'm excited to get back into that. Awesome. Awesome. It's a great addition. We've um, kind of had our head in the sand just uh, working on the property the last four or five years and sure. a polishing it and making it perfect. Um, but it's important that uh, Josh has been good for me this way, uh, you know, <laughs> pulling me to go check out some new things. I got to go check out his uh, public land uh, uh, hot spots and go see what the <laughs> sign looks like right now. Yeah. Hey, Sam, I uh, first of all, I need you to go hunt those places because it's either you or nobody uh, for some of those spots. But I'm curious about your personal property. Every time we've had you on, we've talked about it. Um, and I think folks sometimes can think about habitat improvement with, as though there's a destination and it's totally done. Um, that's never the case. There's always an ongoing project. There's always maintenance that has to happen uh, on early successional forage or on a bedding location or on a food location or, you know, one of your um, travel corridors breaks down in a spot or two that you need to go mm -hmm. in and fine tune. What percentage would you say that you're at, your property sits at? I mean, you've had it for a while. You've done a lot of work to it. Mm -hmm. Where are you sitting as like a norm? Are you at 85% pretty much all the time? Or what does that look like for you? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm a pretty particular guy and want to see things <laughs> just so. So I'd probably rank myself lower than I should. But I'd say, you know, 70, 80%. Um, I'd, if I could pour into it and, you know, get several weeks of work out there, I'd I don't think I'd ever say it's 90 because in my mind, I'm still always changing 10% of it. So it's, right. it's always a work in progress. The maintenance is a really important thing to touch on. You know, we, when we gathered up all our cameras. We pretty much walked our deer corridors to see what was going on. And there was a few places we had cameras that didn't perform as well. And all of a sudden you go see a blowdown 30 yards down the corridor. And it's like, well, it's pretty apparent as to why this happened. And you know, the things like that that need to be corrected and that's okay. That that's all part of what happens with uh, maintaining a deer property and all those things. Um, you know, the, the fortunate thing we have here with the weather being as mild as it has been to date, uh, is, you know, it's, there's no time like the present to get out there and start doing those things. Uh, we absolutely could start getting after cutting trees and, uh, cleaning up and all those things. Definitely. So then, I guess well follow-up question to that because now I'm just I'm just sitting here pondering. Um as you add, you know, permission that you've just gained to a neighboring property, and maybe this applies to other folks who um <clears throat> I don't know, it seems like land's kind of just in in a massive fluctuation right now. Maybe that's just around me, I'm not sure. But um I've you know talked to multiple guys this year who have who have just gained permission on a neighboring property or they've gotten access to something new. Um so for for now, having access to this neighboring property at your place, is that going to change much for the design of your own uh, property? Or is that um, still kind of set in stone and you're just going to have additional access? Yeah, it's pretty much the latter. We, we okay. have some good places we can go hunt. Um, really some peak rut travel spots that we just want to spread ourselves out on the acreage that we can. Sure. Uh, to get after some, uh, some different bucks, you know, it's, it's far enough away that it very well might be hunting a, a mature buck that we haven't seen on camera 
on the, um, you know, mile away from where we're at, it's certainly possible that we'd have a completely different deer. <clears throat> I'll be running, uh, setting up some cell cams earlier than I normally would have mm-hmm. to start monitoring those things and making those adjustments. Um, I want to have those setups. I want to get them done before green up, have them fully complete mock scrapes, probably a water hole too. Um, and, and a little bit of corridor work, not significant, but get that all done before green up, hang the stand and leave it. Sure. And just be it completely untouched. <clears throat> I might take a, <clears throat> excuse me, it might take a trail mower in there on the hunter access once midsummer, take a quick peek that everything's in good shape and get out of there. The next time I'll see it is in late October. All right. I like it. And that's awesome. Um, <clears throat> all right. So let's, let's circle back now. You've mentioned that you've been, uh, well, before we started recording, you mentioned you'd uh, done a handful of walks already for some consulting uh, this season. Um, right now when you're going in, what's that criteria looking like for, you know, okay, let's say I've hunted this, uh, well, we'll start with guys who have been, you know, hunting a property for, um, a number of years here. How do I grade, uh, you know, what my season really looked like, um, regardless of, I guess, let's say independent of your own hunting, um, you know, follies, whatever they may be, Mm -hmm. um, how do you go about grading your own property and starting to actually assess, okay, what do we, how did this all work? Um, all the work that I did last year, maybe how did this, how did it pan out for me this season? Yeah. So when I'm walking around, whether it's mine or anyone else's, um, I'm looking and saying in a lot of those walks that I did already have been ones that were properties that were designed, uh, several years ago, they've been working on, I'm trying to improve them and, and they're working the plan. Mm-hmm. Really, we're we're evaluating it against the plan, and we're saying, "Hey, what did we uh, want to accomplish with our plan?" And now, what is actually happening? Maybe there's some places and corridors where deer are leaking out in spots we don't want them to. <clears throat> Perhaps that's something we uh, can address with some further improvements. Maybe it's something we can't, and it's just we're going to fight it because of the terrain, the topography. Uh, the habitat that's there and we need to make an adjustment. Maybe it's moving a stand 20 yards, readjusting that corridor and just working with it. Um, but a lot of times it's, it's evaluating that travel, the plans we build and, and the success we have is based on travel mm-hmm. and getting deer to move uh, reliably, predictably through a, a property. And when they're not doing that, either through our own observations and experience or through what the deer sign is telling us now. And it, it's as good as it's ever been as far as I do like having some snow, but yeah. I think seeing the pounded down and uh, as wet as it's been this fall, uh, the the mud and the trails, mm-hmm. I, in a way, I like that better because you can see not just the last, what were the last three days in the snow, but what what's happened and what's occurred over the last three months uh, in the on the uh, soil. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that a lot. And that's, you know, I've been doing a little bit of late season hunting this year and that's something that I've definitely noticed as well and kind of took for granted, uh, you know, around gun season, I kind of took, you know, a couple week hiatus there, but getting back into it from this late season. Now I've been noticing the same exact thing. It's like, wow, everything's super apparent as to what's fresh and what's not as, as wet as things are. Um, that's awesome. So then say you're somebody who's, uh, you know, maybe you're you're running out on public land or maybe you're somebody who just bought a property 
um, going in somewhere, there's no work that's been done. How do you go about assessing things in that sense? Are you just looking for, again, kind of keying in on that travel? Are you starting to go look into betting areas? Um, what's the, <clears throat> what's the, yeah, that's really everything. There? You know, when we're jumping onto a new property, we we're assessing it anew. Um, I don't care where the existing tree stands may, may have been and blinds and so on. It's, it's a clean slate, right? Mm -hmm. Just like when we're coming in and evaluating a property for the first time, we are going to observe that travel where the, you know, first of all, <clears throat> trying to anticipate where the major lines of travel would be and then go out and inspect and, and check them out. Same with bedding. Um, and then we'll be learning along the way with, uh, as we go on the walk, covering the property to see what else we encounter in between. Um, you know, deer uh, use the landscape uh, predictably uh, just based on uh, topography, based on the timber and what we see there. And we're just going out there to prove those things. Uh, and then combining that with the design concepts that we do to, to lay out a plan uh, that we can then go hunt and pick off those best areas or try and maximize it to get as many different hunting opportunities on the property, whatever it is, the needs of that owner have. Sure. Absolutely. Love it. Um, <clears throat> all right. So then now as we're starting to get into our actual, uh, you know, our, our post deer season, some of our, our post season work here, um, <clears throat> as we start to adjust things, you mentioned, you know, just, you know, look at, okay, where was travel and everything? Um, do I need to bump a tree stand around and stuff like that? What are the other projects that we can start diving into uh, this earlier in the season? Or are there some that are better um, that we can tackle early on now that the ground is still soft, as warm as it's been this year, or stuff that should wait until things are, uh, the ground's hard? Well, I from when hunting season ends until green up begins, I like to do as much work in the timber as I can. Okay. Um, it's my goal to get the timber work done before green up for a number of reasons. One, it's the way that the timber is going to look next fall when the right. leaves fall and we're, you know, back in the tree stand again in the, in the pre-rut and the rut timeframes. Uh, I, I want to work in the timber when it looks like that. Um, if we go to shooting lanes, for example, and tree stands and do those things after green up, we have a tendency to over clear uh, or make bad choices based on what the foliage is telling us versus what reality will be in the fall. So I like to get all those things done. Plus the impact on, on the habitat. I want the, I want to back out of my cover areas, my sanctuaries and all this and that. I want to get out of that as soon as I can in the summer and leave sure. that to the deer. I only want to be in my fields for the most part in the summertime, uh, working on food plots and such. So right now, what, what can we go after? It's, well, what are those timber projects? If I don't like to cut timber, um, especially if you're doing hinge cutting, uh, when it's below freezing, I think uh, frozen wood in the trees uh, makes that the quality suffer. It can also make some things unsafe, uh, depending on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I always like to have temperatures above freezing, which right now we, we have or have had, and it's, uh, it's, good of good time to go out there and start tackling those things it's great to get browse down on the ground bringing those treetops down letting deer eat there has been uh, plenty for them to get after without having any snow here uh to date but sure. you know that can change quickly and having those tops down so that could be bedding areas that could be corridor development that could be shooting lanes and tree stand work and all those things around uh, around a a 
tree stand setup, I'm not necessarily going to be working on water holes and such right. that as wet as it is and the ground, uh, you know, more difficult to work on. Uh, that's not something I'm going to be tackling this time of year, but really it's a lot of things to do with a chainsaw and, uh, even getting in there when the ground is frozen, when the trees are, are hard, uh, you can go in there and do some work, especially bedding cleanup and things like that. It's so easy to move around on frozen ground that hasn't seen snow yet. Right. Uh, and you can be really efficient with your time in the timber. Absolutely. I like it. Um, one thing I just thought of here, you mentioned, uh, you know, just as we get into the late season, obviously they start, you know, we want to bring treetops down or stuff so that we can have, they, they have that woody browse and stuff that they can be chewing on, um, you know, throughout the winter to give them some, some sustenance. Uh, are, are you doing much um, as far as like late season, like late season, or I almost said like late, late season, basically stuff to keep deer on your property throughout February, March, April, that kind of stuff as well. Um, like when you're, when you're going in and doing this work and starting to create your plan, is it a year round? You know, we want the deer here all year round, or is it kind of, uh, and I know it's probably, uh, you know, situation dependent on what property it is and, you know, how big it is and what you've got access to or not access to. Um, but can you walk me through kind of that and just what the mindset is going through uh, late winter, I guess, into spring? Well, if you have a larger property that allows for bigger food sources, that's certainly something you're taking into consideration in your planting seasons and saying, hey, can I get more food out there to uh, sustain my herd Right. through the winter and all those things. So that's, that's a growing season decision. Doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily impact what you're doing now. Right. Um, there have been years when it's been really cold and a ton of snow. I have thought more consciously to go out there and drop some trees and get those mm -hmm. tops down, especially maples, uh, in the uh, winter time, like to, to get those tops down on the ground. Um, but I don't, I don't worry too much for the deer throughout the winter. Right. Um, did we I think it was three years ago, we might've had a ton of snow where I was more conscientious of that, but, uh, and went out there dropping trees, even, you know, that early, early springtime, uh, that when the, the melt is happening and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the landscape's pretty barren from uh, food at that point in time, getting trees down early at that point in time can be good also. Um, but I don't sweat it too much. Um, uh, you know, trying to sustain them that uh, really, I think, calls back to the, do you have enough, uh, space and do you have enough budget to do uh, extensive food that's going to carry your deer longer? Right. Uh, those are the decisions you're making in the summer. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the Wisconsin Sportsman podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge, making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that is a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions, you know just how frustrating it can be to try to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of mounts and adapters. This fall, I'm gonna be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com and share your hunt with Tacticam. 
Well, that kind of answers our question. Then I was going to say, when is the when is the time to start planning that stuff? Is it predominantly planning through, um, you know, just late season, you know, through December and stuff, and having your food plots kind of timed up in that regard? Um, or is there any benefit to that? But I suppose you know, I've talked to I can't remember if it was you or someone else I was talking to with you leaving standing soybeans and stuff up through the through the winter and all that to give them something to munch on out in the um, right. Your spring planted grains is what. I'm primarily talking there, your, your okay. spring plantings of beans and corn primarily, um, to leave those standing. Um, I don't know that there's a, you know, a tremendous value with corn as it depends. You got to have a lot too, for that to mm -hmm. really, uh, sustain out there also, cause that can get taken early, right. but your brassicas, you know, if you have, if you planted them early enough, you have decent sized balls, they'll continue to, to dig those up and, um, you know, be after them all winter long. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that can be good. And then in the early spring too, if you top dress your fields with rye, uh, you'll see that coming up early. It'll be first thing that's greening up, uh, when those turkey seasons start firing up, you're going to have green fields and, uh, have, uh, you know, have something out there for the deer. One of the first things that'll turn green for you. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. yeah Pierce, you want to get, you want to get Sam fired up, start talking turkeys. Cause this guy, <laughs> This guy loves his turkey hunting, Pierce. But I think I sent oh, Josh an average of uh, ten pictures of se a season of, I think, entitled pests. So. Yeah, it'll it'll either say pests or nuisance or dumb birds or something like that. You know, it's something along <laughs> the lines of of uh, they get on my nerves. Uh, I was gonna say I thought you were gonna go out there on an exterminating mission uh, this past <laughs> spring, but <laughs> oh man, I cannot confirm or deny. <laughs> well if you never if you ever need any help uh you know a couple of guys here sam we can always uh you guys come on over and kill them you'd be my guest <laughs> you won't put a dent in the population though <laughs> it's a good problem to have yeah dude i've been yeah. seeing so many freaking turkeys lately and that's part of it's just they're flocked up josh i sent you a picture of it uh um out of my folks place probably a week or two ago and i think my my dad said he was out walking the dog and one of the fields out in front of their place they had like a hundred and probably 130 140 birds just all on a massive flock running around yeah down there like there's i think the turkey numbers right now are good yeah uh, there was a there was a very good hatch two years ago and mm -hmm. it looks like there was a very good hatch this past year as well yeah um, so especially for you guys there in wisconsin i saw eight turkeys on our property i've never seen a turkey I've never seen more than maybe one or two at a time on our property down in Alabama. So uh, nationwide, we're doing something right. Yeah, I like it. We might have to get a turkey biologist on here at some point. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Sam, circling back to food now, uh, I just thought of it because Josh and I, we did an episode on how to hunt deer a couple of weeks ago, talking late season strategy and late season food. Um, I'm curious to hear your answer. What do you think is the number one food source for deer late season? We settled on corn. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, uh, snow and bad weather is the uh, the preceding event that needs to occur for it really mm -hmm. to to be a factor. I think um, there's so much browse. I don't know how long the acorns continue to feed deer this year too. I mean, that's that's something worth noting anyway. Um, I you know corn beans. You could argue back and forth all day long. I'd probably sure. take a bean field if I had it. Um, in fact, one of the things we're going to do, our main food plot, which we've had greens in the last several years, we're going to go put wall-to-wall uh, -wall beans in it this year. 
uh, for this next season. So I'll be able to report back to you on that. Um, but that's also to just kind of wipe the slate clean on other things we've had in the field there for a few years. Sure. Um, and, and let the beans take care of that. But yeah, I, I think beans, especially at, in, you could have a two to three acre bean field. I think it's going to be more successful in corn. Mm-hmm. Um, just my, my thoughts and, and also to how you're hunting it. Um, uh, if you're following the letter of the law and crop manipulation, not knocking it down and some of those things, um, right. you know, that's, that's important considerations, uh, on that as well. Sure. So is that a matter of, I'm assuming then you mentioned not knocking it down. So leaving standing beans, two to three acre plot. And like you said, obviously it's pressure dependent. Um, is that pre- predominantly because then the, the deer have more visual security as they're entering the field they well can see across your firearm them. seasons too you can see better right oh, that's so true. i mean yeah, yeah you, you can maybe mow that corn down before it um creates uh the ears and things like that and mm-hmm. and there's a number of different ways you could address that but um you know i, th- I think that their return to beans i see but Beans, corn, they're both excellent for late season. I'd also throw brassicas in there. You get a lot of snow and they're pounding through that snow. It looks like a moonscape, just the mm-hmm. amount they turn it up between the snow and the dirt. Um, it, it's like a minefield, how it's all turned up, getting after those um, rotting bulbs down in the snow. Sure. Absolutely. So then <clears throat> so we're talking through food, we're talking through trail maintenance, stuff like that. At what point are you going in and to what extent um, are you using shed hunting as a method of kind of assessing, okay, was I correct here and were this, all right. Folks listening, that was a big goose from Sam. You know, I I do look for buck sign and and maybe finding a shed in a buck bed would be of interest. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly have had that influence some decisions, but not too much. Sure. You know, I know how deer move on my property. I know... Um, in the time frames I'm hunting them, October, November, primarily there, that that's what they're doing at that time. Where they leave their shed it's that winter, that doesn't tell me much. I mean, I've got, I don't have it within reach here. I've got mm-hmm. some mega sheds that I've found on food plots that were from deer I've never seen before. <laughs> they all came in in the winter to eat on the food plot, probably right. at night. And, uh, we got the benefit of them leaving their whatever 80, 90 inch sheds are just gigantic, Right. but they are, um, they're not going to be around in those locations the following year. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Josh and I have discussed it. We're, uh, we're really good shed hunters, aren't we, Josh? (laughs) I may be the world's worst. (laughs) Um, but I best I best find sheds when I trip over them when I'm working on a habitat project. That's yeah. That is about how I find three quarters of the sheds yeah. I find. Or pull them pull them from the tractor or UTV tire or something like yep. that. Yeah, I've done that too. You bet. That's a pretty good way. I had a I had a farmer once and I asked him. I said, "Sir, can I uh, can I shed hunt your property?" He said, "Absolutely." He said, "But if uh, if you leave one and I find it with my tractor tire, I'm coming after you." And I was like, oh, well, uh, that's the trade we're making here. I, I don't know how that'll go. But um, yeah, I, I think part of my part of my not being very good at it is the fact that I don't put a lot of stock into it. Like, I, right. I'm not thinking that like, you know, next uh, next Halloween, I'm going to be in here where I found this shed. And so I don't know, I, I just have a hard time like 
getting my heart into it, I guess, or uh, pretty much I go into shed hunt and then I start looking up and really I'm scouting for deer and turkeys. Mm -hmm. uh, and if a shed, you know, it happens to be in front of me, that's wonderful. The last one I found was a bright white sun bleached shed in the middle of a burn that had just been conducted. So uh, it, that's what it takes for me these days. Hey, I, I will throw this at you guys. I found my first one of the year. I got it right here. Oh, and nice. Really? And oh, the camera may not do it justice, but this thing is, it is super dark. I mean, it's just chocolate. Um, oh, is that around. the one you, you posted on Instagram the other day? Yeah. Oh, super, it was dark. Super dark. And I'm like, well, wow, that's just really unique. Um, I'm a little fearful for the deer. It's kind of flat and, and it's... Uh, you know, a little discouraging that he dropped it this early, but, you know, for probably a two-year-old deer, a really nice, heavy uh, beams going on him. So Yeah, he's yeah. got some mass yeah. for sure. Hopefully he's back mm -hmm. around next year. Right. I was yeah. just about to ask, yeah, so if you're finding sheds this early out on your property, what are you, what's your main concern there? Is that that he was wounded or is that? The deer you know, health, just their okay. health in, sure. general. in general. And I, gotcha. I don't know any more than that to say, is it? Is it their an injury? Is it their overall health? Is it mm -hmm. CWD? I don't know. Gotcha. You know, I all I all I can do it, and I actually have a picture of this deer with one antler. You know, he still has his other. Oh, really? <laughs> um, the picture was the day I picked this this shed up. So I mean, I picked it up. It probably only had been sitting for hours to days. Right. But, yeah. So just the overall health when they drop them this early, you, you start to question that, but you just don't know until. You see him back again next year, uh, or you see pictures of him in the winter. If he's looking worse, you know, two months from now, I get a picture of that deer and I, I start worried about him. Uh, then, you know, they may be headed downhill. Sure. Was, was that a deer that was on your property that you're familiar with from the fall? Yeah. Fairly consistent. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. I think that's, you know, the shed thing I think is unique because I think a lot of people, we like to get, uh, fired up about going shed hunting and you know training your dog to to find sheds and whatnot and you're just getting really good at it but I, I think like yes it's fun right it's a it's a really great way to bust cabin fever right at the same time though I really like what you said there about how you're not putting any stock into what's going on and what that's going to mm -hmm. tell you postseason right or where that deer came from and like you said like you, you had you know huge sheds show up from deer that you've never seen before. Um, yeah, it's just crucial to remember, you know, they're <laughs> right now. I mean, my neighbor sent me a, a trail cam photo yesterday and he's like, yep, they're back in bachelor groups. And it was, you know, a group of five or six bucks, you know, all year and a half, two and a half year olds. Um, but just they're, they're all doing so much different stuff now than they are doing like it's survival mode now. Right. It's not hunting mode or, you know, They've got other things in mind, obviously, but, uh, you know, they're not doing what they're going to be doing in the fall. Right. And I think that's really important to uh, <laughs> just to say, because yeah. the shed thing, Josh, you and I have kind of discussed it, you know, in years past. I'm just like, eh, I don't really like shed hunting. And yeah, you know, there's I mean, people who are super into it. And there's other people who it's like, you know, like us, we're just like, well, <laughs> it's cool to find one. I like putting them on the, you know, coffee table, but that's about it. Yeah, I mean, we, and we do the obligatory like shed hunting episode every year because a lot of people want right. to find animals down here. I get it, right? And so, and, and I do too, man. I like I, yeah. I want to know where you found them and all that, but but yeah, it's it's not going to occupy a lot of my time. But uh, Sam, I have a question for you. This time of year, you are 
you're on properties, you're evaluating properties that people have begun to work on, uh, which I think is a really neat service that you offer, um, you know, coming back after the fact and saying, hey, let's run through and check your property out again this year. Um, so what are some of the mistakes? I don't even want to call them mistakes because I don't want to discourage anybody. But there are habitat improvements that end up um, – there are ways of going about certain habitat improvements that make them less effective than others. There are, you're, you're evaluating bedding areas this time of year. You're evaluating travel corridors this time of year. You see bedding areas that aren't holding deer. You see travel corridors that are too leaky to make them effective ambush locations. You're seeing food plots that did not produce, whether that be, um, you know, the deer or the, the crop didn't come in well, or uh, the deer simply were not using it in daylight. What are some of the pain points people experience as they begin to implement these and how are you helping them address those? That's a great question. And you hit on some good topics there along the way too. I think when it, in terms of timber is that's one of the biggest impacts we can have right now going out there. One of the things I like to tell people is you cannot overcut your timber mm. in terms yeah. of habitat. Right. You know, right. It is most common to see an attempted uh, bedding area or corridor or just timber stand improvement project in general, where you say you cut too much. It's, it's not that, I'm sorry, that's the opposite. You, you didn't cut enough. And, and you go in there and you say, you know, you definitely could cut more. You really aren't bringing in the sunlight you want. Failed bedding areas is one of the most common things in that you need to open up the sky to 75% of the canopy being cleared out. You know, anybody with a middle-aged or mature timber, you have to cut a lot of trees to make that happen. And it's a, uh, it's a common mistake to just not cut enough in terms of corridors too. You, you'd like to get some light in there also, because if you're doing hinge cuts, if you're doing um, even flush cuts to try and generate some new growth there, uh, if you don't have sunlight in, you won't have that long sustaining growth uh, for that corridor. And, and you can overcome that by continuing to do cuts year after year. And the, the maintenance of a corridor does include adding trees, uh, cutting additional trees along the corridors to sustain it. Um, but cutting trees, that, that's a big one. So in the timber, that's a common one. Another one at tree stands is... And I, I try to emphasize this more and more is I really only have one shooting lane, maybe a secondary. And I think it's, it's common for people to want to go in there and clear too much, have multiple lanes, or it just becomes a clearing project all around the stand. And when you do that, you're really exposing yourself too much and you're making it difficult to find success because you're sticking out there like a sore thumb and you're not relying on your developments, your mock scrapes, your water holes, your corridors to do the work and put that deer in your lap versus I got to be able to shoot here, 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 and here. Well, do you, you know, why are you hunting deer 360 all around you? You should try and develop that pattern in front of your stand so that you're sitting still, you have that one shot and you're reliant upon it. So those are a couple timber things back on the food plot side. Uh, sometimes assessing the size of the plot. Maybe it's, um, you know, it, it got browsed so heavily, maybe you want to expand it or um, help it produce more by 
getting more sunlight in. One of the things I've been bringing into my plans a whole lot more and emphasizing is north-south oriented food plots, getting a lot of light into a plot. If you orient a kill plot east-west and you don't have that sunlight getting in as much, um, you're going to struggle. You can improve that by doing heavy edge feathering on the south side of your plot to try and get light in. That'll also create perhaps some adjacent bedding, but you got to keep that in mind too of uh, where your tree stand is at or where your blind is at. And is that in, in conflict too? So I could go on and on of failures and issues of plots and such, but I think that those are, those are some of the highlights uh, that come to mind uh, on the subject. Yeah. I, I see often um, stand locations that go up and, you know, this has been something I've been watching since I was a kid. Stand locations go up because we found deer sign here, right? So we put the stand there and then we go in and we clear it all out so that we can see. Yep. And then the deer sign is gone. Well, what happened? It's like, well, you just, you just created a deer desert. Like you, now that deer is traveling the backside, you know, whatever. Yeah. He went around you. Yeah. He's going around you now and, and not, uh, not, not going to be found in daylight where you, uh, originally wanted him to be. I think that's an important point that you brought up about the timber. You basically can't cut too much. Now, there are some timber value considerations. There are some, you know, mature oaks or other mast-bearing trees that we want to take into account. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about you, but just certain trees I feel sentimental about on my property. That Yeah, there's always an asterisk there to especially right. quality acorn producers, white oaks, especially that's that's my soft spot right there. Right, right. Those trees that you just they just they just get you. But for the most part, if you're cutting a medium-aged tree and down, just cut the tree. Like you're you're mm-hmm. you're you're I I find many people are shocked at what 75% uh, opening really. It looks like a clear cut. It does. It looks like there's nothing left. Yeah. Like it really does look like there's nothing left and you have to take into account the angle of the sunlight to get in there that I feel like a lot of people say, yeah, it's, well, it's, you know, it is a hundred percent cut. It's like, yeah, but that's, that's 0.2 acres and of an acre is not going to get sunlight in except for at high noon in the middle of the summer, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so you've got to expand that out. And that may not look like clear cutting the whole thing, but it may look like the middle quarter acre, if it's a bedding location, is very heavily cut. And then the mm-hmm. next quarter acre ring around around that is less heavily cut, but still pretty heavily cut. And then another ring outside of that so that we're getting better sunlight at the appropriate angles to let sun in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're nailing it. The only other thing I'd add to it is after even one growing season, you should see a change in what is on the floor there. You should see briars. You should see um, different uh, forage coming up. Um, You should see stump sprouts. You should see successful hinge cuts if you made them. If you don't, that's an alarm to go in there that next winter and try and salvage it because you, if you want to create what it should be, that ground will instantly change. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Sam, could you expand upon that as far as like what it should be and what you want on your forest or floor? Because man, like you were saying that there. And I think, I think a lot of, I mean, well, I don't want to speak for too many people, but myself included, man, I felt like you just called me out a few years ago 
when I was, cause you know, my folks have a, it's a little five acre parcel and man, I tried to maximize the heck out of that. And I was like, okay, look, we've got this corner of timber here. Um, I should be mowing these trails here. Um, so I can, you know, I can shoot to this trail. I can shoot to that trail. Uh, you know, I've got all this, you know, all these different shooting lanes here. So I'll be wide open cause they're going to cut through this corner of the property. I want to make sure they cut through on, on my, you know, I want to make, make sure I can reach them rather than adjust the properties so that they want to come near where I've got my hang. Mm -hmm. Can you expand yes. on just what the base or what you want? Yeah. So in that? back to your original question or what the forest floor should look like. Mm -hmm. um, I'll reference a five acre um, near clear cut. We left some large, our best uh, uh, crowned oaks there to be seed producers for us, but it was almost full sunlight coming down mm -hmm. uh, that we've had two growing seasons on it now. And I should show you some video or pictures, but it's, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of stump sprouts, cause we went back in after the oaks were cleared out. That was the harvest, all of the understory maples and elms and hickories and all these lesser trees. We flush cut most of them. Uh, we did hinge cut a few just of how they leaned and what we could do with them. Um, and just a kind of a experiment level too, but all of those stumps have, you know, without exaggeration, like one large stump might have 30 sprouts that are 10 to 12 feet tall now, and sure. they're just going to be off to the races moving forward. I'm really curious to go in there in the summer and see just how thick that becomes, because that's going to be, uh, you know, incredible growth. So everything you see in every direction should just have massive growth on it and and talk about the briars and raspberry bushes and all these other plants i probably just don't know what they are to be honest <laughs> they're they are they're just coming out of every which direction and except for our corridor that goes through there and then some of the bedding areas that we maintain trails on it's becoming almost impassable, you know, but that we have a main corridor that goes right through this cut kind of on a bench system. If you want to picture that around yeah. the side hill, um, it is really thick. Um, but that, that, uh, corridor is, is very strong. And then there's several, um, different offshoots of that corridor where deer can get down to the lower field. We have a food plot below this and then, uh, bedding areas within it. Uh, that we did kind of for plantings on and things like that too. Sure. That's Sam, can I, can I quiz you just a little bit on, you know, you guys had the oaks taken out, uh, leaving behind make maples, elm, hickory, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and you hinge cut some of it, you know, a couple of years ago, it seemed like hinge cutting was like the only way to accomplish deer habitat. Uh, then it got a really bad rap where everybody was like, don't hinge cut anything. Um, so I, I want to hear what goes into your decision, whether to hinge cut or flush cut. You don't have to hinge cut a single, if you're uncomfortable with it, you don't have to hinge cut right. a single thing to get a high quality bedding area. Well said. I, I'd say, and I say this, I use both equally. They both work. Right. Um, what you, what you do not want to have occur is a hinge cut in a, where it's not getting enough sunlight. Uh, the, the tree will struggle to survive, eventually die, and you won't have any sprouts. That tree's dead. Um, with a flush cut, all that energy can go into um, making more sprouts. And, 
and and then hopefully those have a better chance to grow vigorously versus a hinge cut which can do quite well if it has sunlight but if it's you know not getting quite enough it it will just struggle to maintain itself which is well a lot of the hinge cuts we see um but it uh i use both for me with a hinge cut a lot of times it's about how do i want to use that tree if i want to use it like a blockade to uh, do a perpendicular cut for example adjacent to a corridor I will accomplish that with maintaining its connection to the to the stump so I or to the to the trunk through a hinge cut perpendicular in the line of travel and then it stays up off the ground I keep that you know maybe waist height um, so a deer would struggle to go underneath it they'll they'd rather just go around it which is how we're defining our corridor so really it's the intended use of that tree um, and then also in bedding areas, if you have a lot of timber down, you got a lot of stumps already that are going to have stump sprouts to supplement that with some hinge cuts that, you know, they may not have a long life, but they'd have a, a good uh, five to 10 years in them of growth. And who knows what would take off of it. A lot of times with really mature hinge cuts, what really happens is that top of the tree will die and go away. And it's the stump sprout that takes over and becomes a tree again. Um, so that that's how a long, long lived hinge cut will often end up going, but uh, they both have their place in their use and whichever I see at the time is, is the route I'm usually headed. Yeah. I found it interesting, you know, hearing critiques of hinge cutting where people say, you know, well, hinge cuts are so unnatural. You're better off just doing, you know, just flush cutting everything. Uh, the number of trees that I've found since beginning to hear that argument that another tree fell over and hit it. So it laid the tree down mm -hmm. it near the base. That tree then began to grow up after that. It's astonishing how many of those you actually find in the timber. If you really start paying attention. Yeah, they're everywhere, but they're they have everywhere. good connection. They have good connection to the, to the, uh, the trunk. Obviously they're, unless they broke off. Right. Right. Um, and a lot of times have sunlight you in nature, when that top falls down, it punches a hole in the canopy. Right. And a lot of times when it pulls that down, then you may get fortunate enough to have that sunlight fall on that. Now call it nature's hinge cut uh, and provide light for the future. Yeah. I've started taking pictures of every one I can find. And I yeah. see a lot nature's, of hinge, nature's hinge cuts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've been uh, really shocked. It's actually a lot of where I'm at, a lot of beech trees I find laid over like that i guess they're very well uh adapted to that yeah they're very tolerant and flexible yeah right especially when they're younger yep yep yeah, does tree species influence very much of you know where what yeah. where you uh <clears throat> hinge cut josh we're turning this into the hinge cut episode um, <laughs> i'm for it man i don't know nearly no, as much all as good. i should you're good pierce that's a great question and a good point for those who are digging this stuff you got to know your species and what they're going to do. Uh, there are trees that are very unsafe to hinge cut, and it's, it's important to be aware of that. You know, maples are excellent when they're small. When they are bigger, they are dangerous. Don't, you know, all, all of these, we pass around, Josh and I text sometimes these hinge cut pictures of things gone wrong. A lot of times they involve a larger maple tree because they'll snap. Um, and they should not, you know, a maple tree much larger than six or eight inches should not be hinge cut. Um, and they just don't do it su successfully. That doesn't, they can't support that weight and they often will come down and crush that cut. Um, so that's maples. Uh, hickories are great. Beech do well. Josh, you mentioned that too. Uh, 
we got a lot of hickories by us that, that we use. Elm, very flexible also. Um, small oaks, if you got a subordinate oak that's never going to become something uh, because of its competition and, you know, a consideration of TSI, a small white oak or a, a, a red oak uh, can do well. They're more flexible. You get a larger tree, you don't want to do that. One of the a big mistake is to try and put one of these big leaning white oak trees that's much larger than six, eight inches uh, down saying, well, it's never going to become anything. And you try and hinge cut a one foot uh, white oak tree and it barber chairs up and comes down and has a potential to really hurt you. So anyway, just a word of caution on those and, and knowing your trees and testing them out, we should hit on a few others. Box elder are fantastic. Um, though box elder, if they're already leaning, I kind of, I try to leave them because they'll probably fall down further upon their own weight. And like Josh referenced before, if you didn't get that cut into them, they're going to survive that much better on their own. So it's best to just let them go. But box elders are, uh, are fantastic um, habitat trees. Absolutely. And so like you, you mentioned earlier, using the purpose of your hinge cut, you know, using it as a barricade and stuff like that. Is it a matter of, uh, you know, obviously different trees can serve different purposes. Deer are going to enjoy chewing on the brows of different species rather than, you know, so certain trees will certainly, I would imagine, serve as better barricades than potential browse sources, correct? Uh, I would get back to what's good for what type of cut. If I'm making sure. a hinge cut for, especially when mine goes to directing traffic for corridors mm -hmm. and such, I'm not as concerned about the browse quality of them. Uh, it's more about what tree is in the right location, you know, the right tree in yeah. the right location that I can send in the right direction. Uh, if it's hitting those criteria for me, um, I've already got the chain into it and hopefully the guy with the bar behind me is keep it up. Sure. Absolutely. So <clears throat> to really more than anything, we're hinge cutting to manipulate travel and create different in habitat that application. Yeah. Correct? And again, back to bedding areas, it's good for that immediate browse mm -hmm. um, and the, the short to medium term uh, side cover as well. So it, it has its, it has its place in both cuttings where it doesn't have its place is in random timber stand improvement. So you, sure. we, we haven't talked much about this. You got your quarters, your bedding area. We talked a lot about that, but where you have this open timber that you want to provide more, more, uh, uh, obstruction of site and uh, ground cover and, and things like that. Those are mostly flush cuts and you're generally looking for your bigger trees because you want to knock down your, uh, subordinates and lesser producers that are going to also be some good ground structure on the ground. I like taking down, a. uh, gnarly red oak that's not going to be a timber producer for me but mm -hmm. has a top that's just going to stick up all over the place sure. when i put it down on the ground absolutely <clears throat> i like that a lot so then getting more into i guess creating your plan going forward um you know you meant and i like that we're talking about timber stand improvement a lot um we've got a family farm uh out of state that we're slowly kind of getting things going with those guys. Um, do you recommend guys bring out, you know, a forester or somebody for timber stand improvement or how can folks, if they want to do it themselves on their own, uh, you know, properties, what are some kind of key things um, that they can, you know, think about as they begin to look at that stuff? I'm happy you asked. 
go to my website. So we have, we wrote a nice uh, series last year about um, how, how to utilize your forest for deer. Mm-hmm. And to answer your question, um, within that, what we talk about is establishing your goal. What, what do you, what do you want to accomplish? Is your number one goal, your long-term timber value? Well, your approach is going to be different than if your number one goal is deer habitat and understanding which one you want to pick and the priority you have, or maybe you do both in balance, uh, a forester, uh, that has an eye for timber and value and can instruct you on those things is, is going to have a lot of great experience to help you make an informed decision, uh, as well as working with a habitat consultant that's going to help you understand how to rearrange your property for uh, optimal hunting. Sometimes it's letting one go first, like, hey, we're going to establish the hunting plan first, and then what we can accomplish with our timber cuts is secondary or vice versa. Timber cuts and plan is first, and then we will work with that to accomplish what we want to with habitat, or maybe a try and keep it in balance where you as a landowner really have to be heavily involved and orchestrate the two to work together because really it's about understanding that priority um, and, uh, and, and having the decision made uh, and the order you want to do things. Sure. From a habitat standpoint, as you're looking at properties, is it easier to go in, I guess, um, you know, when you're, when you're trying to create a plan, is it easier when that timber stand improvement's already been done? Uh, say you've, you've, maybe you've done that work with a forester and you've, you know, prioritized, uh, you know, lumber value ahead of hunting, or maybe the previous landowner did something like that. Is it easier to manipulate travel and to, you know, design the habitat around that um, when it's already been done versus trying to kind of balance it, like you said, or prioritize, you know, the hunting yeah, and then do I, the timber stand? I would say it's easier if you, if from a habitat standpoint, you can take the lead. Any, sure. any change that you put on the landscape before you decide to do a habitat plan is something that plan is going to need to adjust to mm-hmm. perhaps compensate for perhaps go to a plan B cause you took away plan a, um, and, and make adjustments for. So I would say if, if your priority is deer, but you still want to capitalize on your timber, it's, it is that balance, but you want to fully understand the potential of what your deer property can be and will be if it's set up properly, even going to the extent of laying that out and saying, you know, a simple example would be you have a, a square 40 acres and you have high quality timber throughout. Well, I would say you're probably, and this is generally speaking, you want to have your, your perimeter, if you're going to hunt from the outside in, you want to make sure that your uh, access is still that continuing to be that mature timber. You have high quality trees for tree stands. You have the ability to get in and out in an area that isn't necessarily going to be bedding because it's more mature and open. And then within the core of the property, you have more of a, you have your, more of your cuts. You could have a clear cut. You could have you know, a select cut, you could have a variety of different things. You go in there and take timber out. That's going to create that habitat where deer are more generally in the middle of your property. Um, again, this is a very generic example, but you know, you're accessing it and you're getting the two to work together versus if you go in there and just say, well, I want to select cut the whole thing and do some timber stand improvement and then bring in habitat planning. And all of a sudden it's, 
man, I really wish these three acres in this location, you would have left all these trees because it would have accomplished this task, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's understanding your priorities and making a decision. Sure. I love it. <clears throat> One thought I just had there, as you mentioned, you know, accessing your timber stand, are you ever doing any timber manipulation for access or to create screening or anything like that, dropping yeah. trees for that sense? Or do you ever worry about that creating more bedding than yeah, it's a trade-off that can occur uh, if it's a natural, you know, naturally a location for bedding. That's always of concern. But mm-hmm. um, you know, having having timber resources down on the ground to provide some screening to get in and out of locations can be good, especially paralleling a property line. If you can visualize that, um, that that certainly uh, is a is a common thing that that could be suggested. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be difficult to pull off um, to get trees to fall exactly how you want them to and you, you, you do it, uh, carefully because you're, you may be creating that bedding adjacent to where you're trying to get in and out. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, Sam, we've been going for just about an hour here now. Um, I want to be cognizant of your time. Uh, Josh, any other questions you've got for Sam, um, or anything that popped into your mind as a, as a fellow habitat consultant? Man, I've got 10,000 questions, but <laughs> we'll let Sam, we'll let Sam off the hook. And, uh, uh Pierce, can we plug our other podcast? Oh, totally. Cause it's, that's yeah. the spot where I'll probably be asking Sam more of these types of questions. Yeah. So we have a podcast called the design build hunt podcast, which is myself hosting along with, uh, Sam and the whole team from Whitetail partners, which is actually, uh, actually growing. So Sam, do you want to yeah. take the opportunity to maybe, uh, talk about our team and what we're doing. And um, I, a year ago, could not have anticipated the winter that it appears we're all having right now. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, teeing that up, Josh. Um, yeah. The design build hunt podcast. Definitely check that out. If you like this content, you will absolutely love that, especially on the YouTube side, going and seeing the video yes. version. We break down a lot of properties, talk through them in detail. Uh, there's some really good stuff out there with that, but yeah, for the team, uh, we're adding uh, to our team of five here a couple new members who will be uh, rolled out in early January here. So be watching all our social media for that. Uh, we'll keep it as a teaser as to where they're going to be placed. But uh, I'm really excited to be uh, introducing uh, two new gentlemen with uh, a great experience and background in habitat and planning. Uh, we'll definitely strengthen our team and increase our footprint. Uh, and we continue to talk with others uh, out there. Um, just some fantastic individuals that as we uh, slowly build out our team to uh, to bring in the right people and cover the areas, um, it's a lot of great things on the horizon for us. So look forward to that, Josh, and appreciate your efforts with that podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Sam, where would you, uh, where would you send folks other than the Design Build Hunt podcast uh, or the YouTube channel, Whitetail Partners? Where else would you send folks if they want to keep up with you or uh, or the whole team? Yeah, well, uh, just go to any social media out there with uh, Whitetail Partners. You can find each of our team members. We've got a variety of them out there. Um, my handle now is uh, Sam Whitetail Partners with uh, other people coming on board, uh, shifting over to the first name uh, on those handles. But uh, our website is also uh, the best place to see uh, our content, including our learning center with a lot more resources being added all the time, uh, references to YouTube, to podcasts, but also articles um, some down, free downloads and some of those things that help folks out. 
uh, as well as uh, let them see what our services are if they're interested in uh, having us help them firsthand. Absolutely. Yeah, folks, as a as an impartial third party here, I have to say you got to go follow these guys. You got to check them out. Uh, the video content and you guys have been crushing it in that department and just being able to look at some of the aerial imagery and how you go about, you know, basically just assessing what you're seeing through an aerial you know, image and how you laid out a property um, in that way, the way you prioritize things, the way you, you know, just take different aspects of the habitat into uh, into consideration to manipulate it how you want to. Um, man, I've learned a ton already just from watching the YouTube channel and not to mention even just like the little, the, the Instagram reels and stuff, like whew, those things are phenomenal. Um, so folks, be sure to go check those out. Um, Whitetail Partners, go follow Sam on Instagram, go follow them uh, on YouTube as well. Uh, Sam, Josh, thank you both so much for your time. Uh, Sam, it's always a pleasure. Josh. Great to be here, guys. Thank you. You know, it's always a pleasure. But yeah, thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. While you're at it, if you could leave me a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. You can also follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at the Wisconsin Sportsman or at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics, guests, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show. And if you're looking for more great outdoor content, check out the sportsmansempire.com where you'll find my other podcast, the How to Hunt Deer podcast, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts. And until next time, make sure you make the time to get outside and enjoy the incredible natural resources that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.